when we have failures, we often look at them as opposed to a learning process. We look at them as those failures. Really what they are is a central nervous system telling us signals to get on the better path. And that's another way of saying the brain always wins. It's teaching us, but we're taught systematically in a Western society not to listen to the signals. So that's where we get people with high injury rates, burnout, staleness, demotivation, is because we're taught not to listen. And the brain is always winning by teaching us because we're wired to survive. It's the most complex survival system in the known universe. And it's always teaching us and it's always winning, even when it shuts us down because it's teaching us a new path to be more resilient. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is a sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist with over 20 years of clinical and scholarly experience, including 16 years with the New England Patriots of the National Football League, where he coordinated clinical care and sports science. He also holds appointments for the NCAA, as well as being a consultant for the English Premier League, the National Football League and the NFLPA, the elite military in North America, and NASA. In this episode, Dr. Sullivan discusses drivers for human performance and how to create a high-performance environment. He also details the dangers of one-size-fits-all performance programs and popular habits that the internet gurus espouse. Finally, we get into a fascinating discussion around the fallacy of grit research and the dangers of misinterpreting the 10,000-hour rule. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, John, glad to have you on today. Really excited to talk to you. This is one of my favorite subjects to learn about. And uh, neuroscience and neuroplasticity is like a super hot topic right now. But you've been researching this for a very long time and also been working in an applied setting. So what drew you to studying the brain and improving its function? There's a couple different tracks, as you can imagine. And I love the question because, uh, you know, all of us are getting a little bit more brain wise, which I think is pretty important. But it really came from a couple different background sequences. So I was a divisional athlete and then competed post-collegiate. And I, and I was an endurance athlete. And I always kind of felt like, hey, there's got to be more to, you know, cardiovascular, VO2 max, you know, endurance, uh, lactic, you know, dynamic speed. It's got to be more to the, than just the physical practice. It's got to be something more complex. So that certainly drove is just looking for advantages, but also how does this work? And, and naturally, I'm, I'm curious. And it wasn't enough to look at one system. Importance of the physical training in, in, all, in all performance environments, even from the exercise fitness standpoint, for those who are listening or not athletes, like cardiovascular health outperforms or exercise outperforms modern medicine. So it keeps all of us brain-wise and brain-healthy. And if you don't have brain health, you don't have health. Mm. Then the other piece was the influence of, I wanted to understand the driver of performance. We look at these other systems and they're all important, but we don't look at the driver of them. What is the central? And and what I mean is, is central beyond, you know, more like Gerald Edelman work in looking at the evolution of the brain, a Nobel Prize winning researcher in the area of immunology, but he spent the later half of his total career looking at how does the brain evolve and how do these adaptations evolve and and how important are they? So when I look at sport in, in neurogenesis, I'm looking at how do we develop an athlete? Context is king. Individual variation is what matters, the person sitting across from us. And how do we uh, develop them centrally and then out to the other systems? So it was really trying to understand the whole story instead of part of it. And uh, to me, I think that's critical because then we're helping unlock someone else's story. So when were you an athlete? What what, what time period were you competing collegiately? 
So I was, I was competing, I think, uh, to, 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 to the nineties. So, so I'm old. So, in the 90s, uh, and then I competed professionally, uh, in, in running and then in cycling in the 95 or through 95. So your exercise physiology textbooks, cause I started college in 99 and you know, some of those exercise phys textbooks, I mean, it was all cardiopulmonary. I mean, everything revolved around VO2 max. And if you didn't agree that aerobic capacity was the limiting factor for all sports, like you were shunned. So Mm. I understand why you'd want to take a deeper dive into other things. Mm. You're very right. It was such a focus on that. I mean, that's why when you look at some of the really called arms literature in that area, looking at Noakes, his really was called arms was, hey, do we look need to look at other things and include them in our study? You know, and when I looked, it's on what he was saying, but I respect his called arms saying, hey, team science, let's look at other things. Magnificent thinker, right? Uh, it can't be just one thing because then you lead down a very simple road of more is better. Well, that, that's not how it works. Exactly. So tell me, the title of your book is The Brain Always Wins. And before we got on, I was telling you how uh, when I was in the NFL, my office, I tried to make like a little store for our athletes. So when they would come in, I didn't want them leaving looking for solutions. Like if I could, I wanted to provide it for them right there. Part of the training process is education. And so your book was something, anytime somebody want to learn about sleep or nutrition for the brain or anything, I'd give them your book. So tell me, why does the brain always win? I, I appreciate it. And I agree with you. Education is, a, is sometimes we forget that that's foundational. It doesn't necessarily change human behavior, but it's a connecting point and it leverages that opportunity. So 100% with you there. And then plus, I'm very, you know, a lot of gratitude that uh, you saw the message of the book of, Making science accessible is important. We need to tell better narratives as scientists. And where the the Brain Always Wins comes from is a title, really comes out of a conversation with my writing partner of Chris Parker of Nottingham Trent University in the UK. I kept saying that in our conversations because in a similar fashion, and you know this, and probably a lot of our listeners have experienced it, they're working with someone on improving something and everything connects to something else. Okay, I want to improve body mass composition and then we connect to nutrition. And then nutrition connects to the gut-brain axis. So, And then it also connects in this way. When we have failures, we often look at them as opposed to a learning process. We look at them as those failures. Really what they are is a central nervous system telling us signals to get on the better path. And that's another way of saying the brain always wins. It's teaching us, but we're taught systematically in a Western society not to listen to the signals. So that's where we get people with high injury rates, burnout, staleness, demotivation, is because we're taught not to listen. And the brain is always winning by teaching us because we're wired to survive. It's the most complex survival system in the known universe. And it's always teaching us. And it's always winning even when it shuts us down because it's teaching us a new path to be more resilient. And so that's where the title comes from. Dude, that's brilliant. <laughs> I appreciate it. That is going to be the opening for the podcast. Brilliant. So how do we then optimize or create the best conditions for our brain? And in conjunction with this question, can you discuss neuroplasticity? Like what does that mean? What are the implications for somebody that's working in a stressful environment, they need to upskill themselves, or maybe they're the CEO of the household and they just want to get better at something. I love that CEO of the household. I've not heard that before, but it's, it's very fitting, no doubt. And uh, uh, especially in this day and age that we're in where people are one, the silver linings were connected as a nuclear family, but we're also now having to manage more. So I appreciate that very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Really, when we look at how do we create human resiliency, and I'm defining that from a neurological standpoint, because really it's hard definition and it is neurological. There is a human resiliency definition from psychology, but it misses the mark as far as I'm concerned. And so this is innate. This is not made up. This goes back into our neurodynamics, our, you know, our psychophysiology. 
So when we're looking at how to create human resiliency, it's actually not that difficult, which makes a lot of sense. If it was a large pursuit to make us survive and thrive, we would have died as a species. Mm. We ignore the foundational pieces. And in fact, in the Western world, there's many things that disrupt it. It really goes back to sleep. We don't know everything about sleep, but we know its foundational purpose is adaption, growth, and detoxification. The brain first and then every other system. So we clean ourselves, so cellular growth happens. So going back to neurogenesis, just the act of sleep is your number one performance enhancer to create cellular growth in every system. We talk about brain cells, we talk about neuromuscular cells, cardiac cells, so on and so forth. So much so that we, we can see in high-stress environments that one of the biomarkers is mitochondrial DNA being pressed into the bloodstream. And what that mm. means is mitochondria is an energy source in our system. But when it starts to break down, it sends DNA as a marker that, hey, we're not getting enough sleep. And so we can see that and we can see how sleep degrades us. So much so, yes, people can die from lack of sleep because it disrupts the communication between the he- uh, brain, heart, and gut. Yeah, when I was looking for something to study for my doctoral work, my thought was, okay, number one, I wanted to study something important. You know, I didn't want to just study something that was so fringe that nobody would ever find use of it. I was like, what are th- some things that you can't live without? I was like, food, water. And sleep, eventually you'll die. So I yeah. settled on sleep. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Like it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so cool how there's, it's so powerful. And we're still just kind of unlocking these things like to Tony and Sorelli's work. And it's just kind of unlocking like what is actually happening in the brain when we go to bed. Yeah. And I think your point is really well taken. What, what surprises me about this whole area is that, and, I'm surprised and not surprised. So the military's job is not necessarily to share their information with anyone unless they feel like they can. There's a public good there. But often their job is to protect information, to protect the troops and protect the development of troops. But tons of research has been done in very dangerous, high-performance environments like special operations, jet fighters, you know, certainly tank operators, those sort of things. So we know the, the importance of sleep and they monitor it very closely in those environments. People should not believe everything they see on the History Channel and in movies. In the History Channel, you maybe see actual footage, but it doesn't help the military to tell everyone what they're doing. But sleep has been one of the areas in which they're probably the leading edge on. You don't put people into harm's way where life and death is on the line, and you're, you're actually not only handling weapon systems that can be dangerous to the operators, but also friendly fire. So they've done a trend that worse. Where we haven't is in the modern world of industry where we have working people, the nuclear family, like you mentioned, and then in sport, we're so behind. We just still believe in fallacies. So you, you, you mentioned earlier resiliency, and it's not that hard to create. If it was, we would have died a long time ago. So what is the key to resiliency? Or the you keys? named it, which we talk about in the book. If you think about survival, we have to have sleep then we have to have food, and then we have to have hydration. Actually, the, the order is sleep. You can go longer you know, without food and water than we can without sleep and, and really become incapacitated and then toward death. The next is hydration. Because it fuels blood flow, which brings vitamins, minerals, and glucose, the primary fuel for the brain, if we don't hydrate, then we also have no way of moving any food we put in our system. It slows. Mm. And then you have the primary need of nutrition is not what we've evolved to, which is nice. We've evolved to ambiance, taste, experience. But it really is about making neurotransmission. Food transfers into neurotransmitters, which then feed the brain to operate the other 11 systems. If we don't do those well, and we don't have to do them perfect, thankfully, the brain hates perfection. In fact, the brain gets more anxious. That's why you see people who seek perfection grow more anxious because it's never seen it and it's never experienced it. And you stress the system more. So, But if we don't do those three things, we're really jeopardizing a foundation of movement forward no matter what your goals are. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. That's evolution in action. So from a food standpoint... What is your recommendation for how people should eat? 
Well, it's a great question. And I love this. This is where we get into human variation is the rule, not the exception. So I'll talk about generalities, but what we should be doing, and, and I work in a team environment more often, because as I said earlier, we're a complex system. One thing leads to another, which leads to another. Team science, team sports medicine, team medicine does too. I may identify and refer to a nutritionist and a medical doctor who's going to draw the test. It leads to these chain of effects of expertise. When we look at the primary fuel for the brain, it's glycogen. And if we look at, generally speaking, some of the myths around this, we lean more towards proteins. Well, proteins actually create inflammation if we're eating too high of amount that don't work for us. They take longer to break down. So if they take longer to break down, our brain is about efficiency. So now we've disrupted efficiency. Protein is important. But what we do know generally, speaking generally, I'll get into the human variation piece, that the westernized diet, we get enough protein to support. We have cut carbs and given them a sense of evilness. That actually, carbohydrates produced glycogen has allowed the brain to evolve. Again, going back to Gerald Edelman's research about the evolution of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is about one, one third to one fourth of our brain. We didn't start with, that's the, one of the earliest parts of the brain where we go with executive function decision-making. That grew out of being able to understand choice of food, cooking to magnify the food's impact, which really was about glycogen. And so when we look at, an, an example of this is really the most research in nutrition and the more needs to be done is really looking at blue zones and what do we see about nutrition in blue zones where people live longer, higher quality of life, internal, external experience. It is the Mediterranean diet. More research needs to be done, but now we get to individual variation. What I was just talking about is what we know, but what we really need to know is down to the individual. So when I'm working with a high performer, I want blood tests, I want urine analysis, I want fecal, and I'm collaborating with a nutritionist and a medical doctor. Because what drives it is what's happening internally. Mm. And we've done too much kind of uh, base rates and, and, and just normal curve. What does the population look at? And really, it's all about the person sitting in front of you. Mm. Blue zone. What do you mean by blue zone? Blue zones are an area of research that's been looked at of where people live the longest with the highest quality of life, least amount of internal disease and external, you know, experience of high quality of life. They're, they're emotionally feeling good and they're leaving into their hundreds, you know, and we only have a few blue zones around the world. And when we evaluate complex systems, what do they eat? What do they do? So let's look at some of the habits. So Mediterranean diet, which again, carbohydrate, trace amounts of proteins, high vegetable content, different because you got Okinawa, Loma Linda, California, you know, places around the world where that may look different on what they eat traditionally, but we see the qualities. They take a siesta, they take a nap in the day. They're averaging seven to 10 hours of sleep. They're physically active. Exercise is medicine. So in a way, blue zones have taught us that if you don't have brain health, you don't have health because all of these things load the brain. Mm. And then when you look down to the individual of these, and then you look at high performers, we see similar things. But we also know that we've tested some of these subjects in blue zones down to the individual. There is variation. There's difference between that group more so than the average person. And that's where the real stuff is. And we've been doing far too much research and going, this is what the population looks like. Population doesn't matter. There gets a point where it doesn't matter. It's really you and me, we're sitting down with someone and we're trying to figure out what works best for them. We always talk about human variation, but we don't apply it. Huh. What we do, that's where, the, that's where the magic is. So you brought up a word and I'm so glad you did this, this term high performance. And I am on a mission to reclaim this yeah. word because it has been misused by charlatans people that really have no idea what it is and people that just honestly like they've done a great job marketing it. What is high performance? I, I love your goal of reclaiming words. I think there's a list we could probably put together. The two of you and I, <laughs> and, and, and as you grow that group, the list will grow longer, but this is one of them. I would agree with you. And probably the, the very much complimenting your sense of it is like, 
you can look at these terms and marvel at the marketing and they've got it to turn the way they want to manipulate it. As a scientist, words matter. Definitions matter. You know, for everyone listening, we all have to increase our scientific literacy. And I'm saying that as a scientist because we're being inundated at a time, we're in the third wave of the information age. And currently, we're being inundated with more information. Uh, and the brain is an amazing thing. But once we go past its working memory to be able to kind of figure out what's truth and non-truth or pseudoscience, it's difficult. It's difficult for even scientists. So I love reclaiming words and redefining them because we have to increase our scientific literacy. High performance, really interestingly enough, there's only about two studies out there about high performance culture. One was done in the UK leading up to the London Games when they were evaluating what they were doing. And their definition they pointed out was, to your point, there's thousands of definitions. Most of them have no real validity. But the ones that do honor our makeup as human beings. High performance first is about protection of talent and health. I call it protection of talent. They would say health, which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. If your athlete's not healthy or some ability to go ready, then performance is going to not not happen consistently or be able to happen at a high level. Mm -hmm. So health is the foundation and then it's, and that's individual. And then performance is about talent development down to the individual physically, emotionally, and cognitively. And each athlete is focused on as an N of one, what we would call a case study. And really when we're doing high performance, whether it's someone in industry, whether it's elite operators in the military, whether we're in the NFL, whether we're in any other pro league, AFL, you know, Prem League, it's an N of one. But most people don't act on that. They talk about individual variation and I'm doing high performance, but they're doing one size fits all. And that's not how it works. No. And there's a little, I I also think people need to start seeing themselves as high performers. And right now what I, you know, if you just go on Instagram or whatever, and you and I can talk about that later, high performance is a motivational tactic. They're like, oh, you want to be a high performer? You got to get motivated today. And here's your motivation. Well, if you read BJ Fogg's research on habit formation, motivation is exactly what you don't want to rely on. Behavior is motivation, ability, and prompt. And your, your actions should change as your motivation changes. But we should have a steady stream of actions. But how can we help, like we said, just whether the, the CEO of the household or whether you're in a corporate world or a teacher or uh, an athlete, how do we help people restructure how they view themselves to start viewing themselves as a high performer? It's a great question. I've always worked in my career and having worked in sport, military, aerospace, and then also industry, performance is performance. We are all performers. Mm -hmm. In some context, in some situation, which you're highlighting, we're asked to be able to do, to be ready and be able to execute. I'll give an example that you were doing, and I really liked your terminology of the CEO of the household. If we look at most Americans or anyone in the work environment, you go to a job and you're asked to do, to be ready and be able to perform. And then there's a transition to the home environment, but no change. You're asked to come home and perform. Be there for your spouse, be there for your children, and then be able to shift gears. Well, that requires a set of things about, one, going back to brain health, create that foundation. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be consistent. We all have disruptions in sleep. It's what do we do next after the disruption, right? Mm. We all have disruptions in nutrition. What do we do next? And do we understand what actually makes neurotransmission for us? And we all you know, have to hydrate what do we do with that on the job at home? And then you can go to these other things. So I always see everything as a set of performance because people have expectations or people have expectations surrounding them. So yes, performance is all around us. So with COVID, a lot of people are working from home and there is no shift. Mm. Any tips around that? 
I absolutely do. I think you're very right about that. I've talked to many people about they use their drive home or their commute home as a way of transition. And we are always working in cycles, almost thinking about training. Training goes in cycles. The cycles should be about goal-oriented and match the readiness of the individual and scaffolded well. So we need those transitions. I generally encourage people to then build into their life transitions in the day, whether it be collective, like you're used to a walk home or a commute home, so you create that at that same time. So you're biologically, neurologically matching what you can. Now that can include bringing your kids with you. It may not. Or if that's not possible, is actually creating quiet times and making some habits and traditions in the family around that. And again, then that, because I know we sometimes may not be able to get away that separation time. But if we include the silver lining in COVID is that we are, I'll have to go a little bit of a deeper dive with this in some of the research, but what we are seeing is we're spending more time together. If I go into some of the economic research, when we looked at environments, and I hate to break it down this way, it's really just environments of neglect, really. Whether we look at whatever level of SES, we as Americans should be at now, and this was theorized in the 70s, the way the economy was going, we should be working a 15-hour work week. We're not because of change in the economic laws where we work longer for less money. So what happened was is social interaction, communication regulates us. So what we were seeing is families all across the SES were not being regulated. So we're seeing that. What do you mean by SES? Uh, social economic status. Okay. It doesn't Sorry, matter just, where you yeah. fell. Yep, yep. We're spending less time together, dinner time, lunch time, breakfasts. And when you disintegrate a social network that regulates us, it regulates our vagus nerve that connects our brain to our heart, to our stomach, communicating, listening, engaging, mm-hmm. that what was happening was they were seeing larger amounts of emotional distress among all age ranges and all race. And so when you create an extreme economy, that means in, in extreme capitalism, you're going to hurt groups of people working longer for less money. The silver lining of COVID is we've gotten back time. It's what we do with it that can create that regulation. And, and now I'm not saying COVID doesn't come with distress, but there oh, is yeah. some of the silver lining research that we're seeing that we're getting to spend more quality time that was taken away. So what do you think is going to happen to nuclear families? Are they going to get strengthened? That's what we're seeing in the research. We're seeing much more resilience in that, but also we may see, and we're not going to see it globally, we're going to see employers now know that they can do remote work. Advantages. I mean, unfortunately, one of the advantages that they're seeing, which hopefully will pull back to help employee health, is that most people work an extra three hours every day. There's no commute. You're constantly online. You're uh, those adaptations of being addicted to the process. So we actually, had, so they're seeing that they're getting something for a lot. Oh, uh, I didn't think about that. So now, though, if you're responsible as an employer, you need to create hard and fast rules around or guidelines around. Hey, listen, we don't expect you to be at your computer all day, mm-hmm. like. It, I think it needs to go to more of the, you know, like I've worked in some football environments where it's, you are, you, you just work and work and work, 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 work. And you don't leave until the boss leaves. And that's a boom badge of honor. Right. And then there's other work environments where it's like, look, you have work, a job to get done when it's done, you're done. Yes. And you know, Tony Dungy was like that. I think a great example is at Tampa Bay right now with Bruce Arians. Everybody, it's so funny. Everybody wants to go work for that guy. <laughs> and he's he's had success. I mean, he got to the Cardinals to the Super Bowl. And but um I think that, you know, personally when COVID started, I was I had some anxiety because I felt like I wasn't doing enough. And then, then I had to, I was trying to constantly like validate my work for my employer. And then I started reeling back, kind of reeling it back and be like, no, it's about productivity and not activity. Can I demonstrate that I've done, I accomplished a task, work on a project. And so uh, I know a lot of people just don't want to go back to work, not because they just don't want to go into an environment with other people. They're just like, man, I love being at home. I love being around my kids. Yeah. There are several lines to it. Absolutely. 
I would agree with you. And, and I think what you just said there is brain wise work environment that is often missed is that it's not about time. It's about efficiency because that's what the brain is about. The brain is very selfish with its energy. Anyone that's listening and viewing anything you eat, 60% goes to your brain and it only weighs three pounds. So if we become inefficient in our efforts, we lose capacity, whether you talk about emotional capacity, cognitive capacity, or physical capacity. So it's always about efficiency. That's part of my work and all the environments I've worked in is I'm never walking into an organization that doesn't have strengths. Often when people hear consultant or they hear these dynamics of change, their assumption is things are broken. There isn't an organization that's completely broken. There are strengths, and that's what you're building off of, almost like when we're talking about the human system and the human brain. We're building on strengths. It's subtlety. But one of the subtleties is often about efficiency, looking for ways we can make things efficient so people can stay engaged because time isn't a metric that matters. There's no evidence that shows eight hours a day is a metric of efficient work. We know this research in the sense of that is just a made-up number. And you're right, your comment is very, and there's evidence on this, there's evidence in highly established westernized industrial countries. Your comment about, well, wait a minute, you know, this guilty feeling I have, don't we as employers have to protect? And think about that's what we do in high performance. We protect people from themselves. In Germany, for instance, you cannot call an employee after hours. You cannot text them. You cannot email them. There are set parameters because that is sacrosanct recovery time. And the work is the stimulation for growth and learning. The recovery is where it all comes together. Mm. So you're exactly right. Good organizations are proactive around the human factors and the brain factors. So you're exactly right. That's fantastic. You kind of hit on something that I want to ask you about now. Fasting. So if 60% of the food that we take in is used for our brains, there's a lot of good research out about the benefits of fasting. And then the, you know, even like the healing of the gut and then these coordinated cellular adaptations to deal with stress. And then if you think about the gut brain connection, so I think New England Journal of Medicine did a fantastic article on this. What's your take on fasting? Maybe how it could be used, how it's abused, whatever. I'll go with first how it's abused because I think any good science can be abused. It really can. And this is where I'm always thinking about as a sports medicine and sports science professional is that we've got to protect talent. And to your point earlier, and I was talking about scientific literacy, teaching people how to transfer this information to their lives. One thing I would say about the evidence is we don't have enough consensus in total. But the way we protect ourselves is there is knowledge out there is that every individual that's considered fasting should be getting tests done to see if it's an adaptation that would work for them. It's a change. It's like when to do it, how to do it. If they're in a training cycle or the phase of their life or you're diabetic, this isn't going to work. Right. So it really is, this is where expertise, everything is done within a team environment. You're an expert on you. You have a goal, you have subjective information that experts need, but let's get blood, urine, and fecal, and then prescribe it in the right way so you get the most effect. So what would be a contraindication for fasting besides diabetes? Yeah, diabetes. Well, even subclinical diabetes. If you're low blood sugar and you are on that spectrum, that's not going to be good. Um, First of all, the the damage to the gut brain, but also you will notice emotional cognitive uh, deficits that won't necessarily be there. Be a sharp, emotionally balanced person and then suddenly someone's wondering, who am I with? Yeah. (laughs) And then let's just go through... That's not a good feeling. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, exactly. And it isn't a good feeling for the person because... Did that, that head just pop that. out of your head? Like what yeah. happened there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it is a subtle shift mm-hmm. in how much dramatic stuff that's complex systems. Small changes can make dramatic differences, plus or minus. The other thing I would say is you described, again, going back to the lexicon of most people. I mean, I'm not a competitive athlete anymore. I see myself as a performer, but it's more of a life performer with a mix of things. And I think that's where most of us sit. Should we be doing fasting at a time where there's dynamic stress or multiple things going on at once? 
or should we pick a time for change that has more optimal opportunity to grow? You should be evaluating that. I mean, that's just like evaluate load, right? Should we be asking ourselves to do too much? Well, I'll, I'll give a simpler example that you and I will laugh about. We've all probably done it, but most Americans do and the gyms love it. Maybe not now because of COVID. January 1, everyone rushes back to the gym. Yep. They bury themselves in a workout for two weeks and they never go back because they traumatize themselves. But the gym <laughs> keeps collecting membership because that's yes. what it is. It's trauma. Yeah, it is. Trauma. And so if we're going to do a dietary intervention, we have to pick times where it's going to have not only the best plan, but the best opportunity to grow. I love your way you're thinking about this. Yeah. It's often we just, we hear a fad and we go, let's do it. When we haven't thought through the pre-mortem thinking of what could go wrong and then what's my plan and is this optimal or even just somewhat optimal when right. we don't think like Interesting. And a lot of people, when they want to validate their assumptions or thoughts on something like, well, 6,000 years ago, we were foraging for whatever and all this kind of stuff. Like, I ask myself, did they not? I mean, if you just read like biblical text, they stored up grain. And what these people weren't just like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, they were some smart. People, the more you look at archaeology, like, wow, they were way more sophisticated than we give them credit for. 100% and well said. I mean, my writing partner, Chris Parker, talks about the wisdom of the village. And with 21st century science, we get to unpackage it a bit. And the reason why some of these things have stayed and grown is because they're effective on the brain and other systems. So you're exactly right. There is wisdom. I mean, look at meditation, thousand years old. And now at 21st century science, we're really unpackaging the tool that it is. And it was. And actually, we're making it an even more precise tool. Uh, not necessarily mindfulness. Let's not get into a, an example of a definition that's blown up means everything and nothing. Meditation has a scientific definition. Would, but, you, would you define it? Yeah. Meditation is using a... It's actually a tripart process of management of the neurophysiology and our physiology. So you're training three things. It's a recovery technique because the foundation of meditation is breath rate control. It's getting your breath rate under six breaths per minute, which manages the lower brain. And you cannot manage the upper brain without managing the lower brain. They're not separate. So when you look at cognitive training, everyone ignores, everyone looks at the top of the brain, the wrinkly part everyone focuses on. That's the youngest part of the brain, which I mentioned earlier. The oldest part is the emotional centers. Mm. So meditation helps us with recovery and emotional management. And those are tied in because also breath rate is in the lower centers of the brain. Then it's about being able to do divided attention, distractions, a part of our lives. Mm. It's being able to get pulled away and recover. And then it enhances prefrontal cortex abilities with working memory. So it's a tripart process and it's using either a focal point of a word, a focal point of a sound, a focal point of a feeling. That's fantastic stuff. I had Peter Haberl on. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter at the USOC. Mm -hmm. He kind of coined this phrase, attention is the currency of performance. And he also said something that I really appreciate. He's like, people are using mindfulness as like the panacea of everything. He goes, it's just... It's just something. It's just part of the process. But he said it's really good to be able to, like for an elite performer, he, this was, this, this, there was some gold on this podcast, but he said, people come to me and say, help me be more confident. And he says, I'd rather not. And they're like, wait a second, aren't you the hotshot you know, sports psychologist? He said, I want them to be okay with feelings of being uncomfortable. Because oh, when you try to win a gold medal, that is how you are going to feel. The key thing is, is being able to notice it and then shift your focus to where you want it. And I just thought that was brilliant because it's not going to cure everything. No. And actually, I've written an article about it with a colleague, David Koppel, the University of Washington. And it is unfortunate when you get extreme capitalism, we can attach money to things going back to your wanting to capture back human performance that once you attach money, it's very difficult to redirect. 
Mm. When there's a monetary amount on human performance, mindfulness, grit, mental toughness, it's very difficult. But the science, we do have growing science, but we don't necessarily... One of the things that's so important is when we look at science, we have to get to a point of consensus and meta-analyses, which is how science takes stock. Mm. And if we're not there yet, there's more to learn. I'm not saying it's not a safe tool. It is. But he was stating someone that is an innate neuroscience truth. Emotions run the show in sport and life. They just do. Our brain is an effective brain, an emotional brain, before it is a decision-making analytical. So when people talk about we just need to decide, every decision we ever make is emotional. Then you cue into a tripart process of actually cognition works in three ways. Mm -hmm. Management of emotion, which comes first. Then it's alerting. You have to be alert to something important in your field, consciously and in the background. Thousand bits of information are flowing in the background. Not all behavior is conscious. That's another fallacy of the Western world. Much of our behavior is not. Mm. It's pattern recognition. It's being alerting. It's tracking. Then you get to executive attention, where you're on the verge of making a decision. This is happening in millisecond. Uh. And so, but emotions set it in play. So if you're not comfortable with being uncomfortable, then it's very, very difficult. And everyone's done this before. Let's go back to your life performer thing. Everyone has done this, gotten in a car, driven somewhere, and they have no idea how they got there. True. Been there. It's scary. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden you're like, wait a second, it. I have kids in the car and I just arrived at a destination. Yeah. And that's how good the brain is at emotionally managing pattern recognition, tracking. And the only time thinking comes into play is when our normal routine is deterred, we're cut off, there may be a detour actually with construction. So we have to remap, but then we go immediately back into that high efficiency state, which people call flow, but it's a whole nother conversation. It is a distal explanation. It is not actually, Chicksamahai's research is quite poor. He's actually quoted early on in his research as saying he did not want to render his theory to high empirical evaluation because it was not ready. And it still isn't. People have run with it. Again, monetary value attached to yeah. it. Not good science. But we know efficiency happens on the brain. See, yes. feel, do. See, yeah, feel, do. It's kind of like why there's an old saying, see a little, see a lot, see a lot, see nothing, right? Like as a quarterback, or if you look at uh, Dr. Gershon Tenenbaum was one of my mentors when I was at Florida State. And he did this great talk for actually, I brought him to Kentucky to help out with some stuff. And he did this presentation for our coaches. And he said, attention, like if you look at a novice decision maker, and then he kind of like somebody returning a ball on a punt, punt return. And then he said, if they were to look at the field, he basically showed it like gunshot, like just splatter points all over the field. He's like, we're an expert decision maker will narrow and choose the right cues to look at to make faster decisions. And so this whole idea of like where our attention is and how we're making decisions, that's what helps us to be more efficient. The more you practice, the more you understand the and it can share the mental model with your teammates. It's just, yeah. you know. And but it goes back to exactly what you're saying, though. The piece yeah. we often leave out is the feeling part. Yes. We leap to the cognition. We forget that what we know about neuroscientists any mammal that has damage on the lower brain, so any of the lower brain, brainstem, amygdala, medulla pons, all those areas that have to do with emotion and then involuntary function that tie in. That's why the brain is heart connected by the vagus nerve, brain, heart, and gut. That's why there's an influence there. Any damage to that area, you have no cognition. Mm. So they're so intimately connected. So it's always see, feel, do. And it has to be efficient. We're making decisions in the background, like we'll go with driving. Driving is a very complex thing. So I've worked high level with concussion for a very long time. And it always amazes me that people will get a concussion assessment and then they drive home. <laughs> very complex. It's very complex. And I always, when people are coming in for an evaluation, it's, I mean, they're, they're coming in with someone because likely they're not driving home. That is, yeah, like in college, you know, that we have these really extensive concussion protocols and that's one of the things you are not allowed to do. Okay, the door cracked open for me for just a second. I want to talk about, and I don't even know, this came popped in my head, but it, the concussion thing. Sensory deprivation, flotation. 
Mm. That's fantastic. Yeah, great segue. You know what I, what I say? It's sadly one of these tools we invented here in the U.S. It was established out of research of trying to understand some of the trauma and torture that our Vietnam veterans went through because the Viet Cong and the Chinese did use deprivation in a negative fashion as a way to traumatize, uh, whether it's gathering of information or, or such. And so researchers back in the United States in psychology and neuroscience in particular tried to understand what affected the brain and by accident, which research often does, we discover things we didn't expect. Mm. That if you do it within a standpoint of a different protocol, you can get the brain and the autonomic nervous system to quiet very, very quickly. Sadly, the research money evaporated, but it laid root in UK and the rest of Europe in these spas. I was a part of a team that brought it back to the United States shores for the elite military and then also doing research at universities. Now, it had modernized a bit, but what we see is, and the research is still growing in this area because now we have dry floating. When you're really? In, yeah, we're in a deprivation environment, but you're on a waterbed. You're on and a you're floating, And you're floating. Is that cheaper then? It is cheaper then. But the other thing is, is there may be other adaptations. One for people don't want to be in water. They're, they have fears with it. They yep. don't like the sensation. So, so we're bringing back the 80s waterbed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> your, your weird friend's dad had one. And right. when they, your, the parents right. went out, you'd go jump on it. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. So what we've discovered about this is you can quickly get someone into a state that we were talking about earlier where there's lower brain function that quiets and we get someone very quickly to six breaths per minute or under without any training. Huh. And then the brain gets really quiet and the autonomic system, so our system to be sympathetic, go, 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 parasympathetic, you know, calm, and they're not adversarial. So we want coherence that they work together. They become yes. more open. So what we see is with the breath rate dropping, that those systems go back to coherence and become more flexible, more vital, more able to be resilient and be able to be on off depending upon the sequences. The other sequences that happens in these deprivation environments is when you're floating and the air equalizes in temperature, your brain has no understanding of direction. So it's one less thing to focus on. There's little light, there's little sound. And in an environment where all those metrics have gone up, we're pinged constantly by technology. And I'm not against technology. We just have to use it as smarter tools. Again, third wave of the information age, I liken it to when we're in the industrial revolution and having kids work in factories third shift. It wasn't smart. We learned from that. Yeah. <laughs> we just got to use better tools, but we're pinged constantly. We're constantly pressured by time. And then emotionally that draws on emotional cognitive resources. When we can do a pause, almost a reset, we're effectively helping with rest and recovery, generally stress and trauma and then the research is very good coming out with, I see everything as trauma. Stress is a, is a subjective term that we've applied as humans. The brain knows a small T or a big T, trauma. And so when you can help with that also with war fighters, firefighters, police officers, paramedics, it's passive. They don't have to do anything. Yeah. That's a key thing with compliance, right? It was an incredible thing to bring back here and then see spread. So number of the universities I work with, that was when we, we built the performance center. If you, if you don't have a deprivation float tank, you're missing. Oh, yeah. We used it when I was at the Texans. We, uh, we started using it a lot. We didn't have them in the building, but we would you know go to different places in town and the players could go. And we did a ton of them. And we would use, uh, we would look at, DC potential and HRV, and you would just start seeing things normalize. Even the curve, DC potential curves would go from inverted to these just nice, these curves would flatten out very smoothly and, and really in the, in the appropriate time domain. It was just fascinating to see. I, I loved it. The first time you get in though, if you fall asleep and you wake up, I mean, it is a disorienting. You're like, am I in outer space? Like, where did I go? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. I often will scaffold people to do it for 30 minutes and build up. But you're right. Most people's reaction, it's a good weird. 
Yeah. But then as it goes on, it's just good. Yeah. Um, when I was with New England, I spent my first year 2000 working on coaching health because I knew if they had, as we know, football's a start and stop game. So the influence of coaching health influences coaching performance, which influences the whole complex system. Their emotions help affect our players. Their ability to call plays can make a difference at any moment in time, putting an athlete in the position to optimize their talent. So I worked on health. And the one way I was able to kind of get sleep as a metric of importance for coaches was eventually taking our coaching staff around the world, basically, to places where these were. So I've worked in the Prem League. So having them see inside Manchester United and go, oh my God, what do they have here? And, and then trying it out. And I still remember the coaching staff first time floating. It was a fascinating experience. Again, a good weird. Yeah. But then they understood how important this is for themselves as performers and health being the foundation and then being doing everything else. Because going back to something you said, coaching health is often ignored. And especially you acknowledge the NFL, I think for a time it was very much and even more so still it is that if I'm not work, you can't fire me because I work hard. When it's not about that, it's about efficiency. How much of that time isn't worthwhile and you're damaging yourself, your relationships, your family. And now with Uh, computer technology and like with the way that we're tracking games, I mean, you can do formation, all that stuff can be automated. Absolutely. And anybody that doesn't want to do that is just, it's like, okay, get rid of your cell phone then and just use a landline. They'd be like, no, 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 no. Well then just get with the modern times and become efficient. There's like this pride and badge of honor with abusing yourself. There is. There is. I agree with you. And I, and I think the piece of it too is, you don't want to adopt everything of technology. To your point, right. I love tradition and I'm sure you do too. But when it doesn't meet the metric of science anymore, time to get rid of it. Right. And, and that may take time to show that to people. But I often think it's a mismetric about the health of everyone. Like you were saying, as a support staff, coach. But we got them into float pond so they could experience the fact that this would be really helpful and I taught them, this is like grandma's candy dish. You get two, you're going to want six. Because six pieces go in, six pieces are going to go out. So we started with one at New England, and we completely expanded within uh, just a few months. Yeah. Uh, one of the Super Bowls we're at, we rented out a spa down in Florida for the whole week. And we just had a shuttle service taking players to... to well, that's fl- how I found out about uh, some of the places in Houston. Because when they played in our stadium, some of these places started reaching out to me. We were like... Hey, did you know the Patriots were in our, uh, I was like, Oh wow. Where are you at? So I want to get to a question that's really important. I think to both of us, and it's this fallacy of mental toughness, resilience, grit. Like what is mental toughness? What concepts do we need to walk back and re-examine? Yeah. It's a great question. And I think it's been woven in here with your wanting to pull back human performance and and really stick to the hard scientific definitions and how they importantly iterate by our evidence base. So I could do a whole show on this. So you keep me to task. We'll we'll have to bring you back then. (laughs) I'm happy to, because I got to be honest with you. This is one of the things, including human performance, that I think does damage And it has. We have evidence that when we run with these definitions that mean everything and nothing, Mm. they can do damage. And I'll give an example that's corollary. So the 10,000-hour rule. It's it's been misconstrued. And I'll go through that quickly. So one of my pet peeves, you have announced them, I will never degrade Malcolm Gladwell for not being an amazing writer. He is. I will never write at his level. But he is a author who's acting as if he's a scientist and he's writing things in which he cannot understand, fully understand the data. He can only understand it to his level, the death of expertise. And there is more data sitting around him as he writes on the floor that never makes it in. The 10,000 hour rule, if we just look at the fallacy of that and how much damage was done orthopedically to athletes at the youth level, the interscholastic level, and even at the pro level, because if we attach it to money, more is better. If I am a fitness coach or sport, and I'm not saying all of them did this, but we have the orthopedic data, the amount of injuries that grew, that understanding of a simple concept, I always want complex things to be simple, that if I just work out more, but doing that, we injure generations of athletes. 
So mm. words can start wars, but they also can damage human dignity and human potential. So I, mental toughness is the same. Let's look at the history of it. And we'll look at the history of grit. And I can surmise them in a couple ways because they follow a very similar line of fallacy. So John Kelly, a psychologist, established some rules about how we define phenomena. In 1970, he established this jingle jangle fallacy because he saw it happening that if I take a phenomenon and I rename it, this is what mental toughness and grit is. They took two concepts that had been fully studied to the nth degree using psychometrics. Again, not neurometrics and objective data, but they just renamed them. That's a jingle. That's marketing. That's not science. So mental toughness started from hardiness, looking at personality psychology, looking at psychometrics only psychologists could use. And so this concept's been around since the 70s. They read mental toughness in the 80s, and we still have no better science on it. And we're 2020. And in fact, it's done more damage. Most of it, does not really, what it leaves out, when the studies are not very good, we have sampling errors, we have p-hacking, we have, which means they're playing with the data to look at correlations to say we found something. And there is no recognition of the neuroscience of the brain and our psychophysiology. Mm. So it's just one simple concept. I can sit on a sideline and go, that athlete's tough or not tough. That's too simple. And then grit did the same thing. So grit was rebranded by Angela Duckworth from conscientiousness, which was also studied in psychometric studies. And it was brought to its nth degree of what they can understand from a subjective psychometric standpoint. And she just rebranded it grit, but she made even more errors in it. So Marcus Crudet has done two meta-analyses of grit, and he showed that she made simple statistical errors. Forget the jingle jangle and just marketing a new concept. She only studied education. She allowed it to be generalized. And we know how generalization works. We can't study it in education and say, this is how it works in industry. This is how it works in sport. This is how it works in military. Can't do that. But she made a simple statistical analysis, and her prediction rate in education was grit was 34 percent of the change between an athlete striving but really when the analysis of her mistakes was taken into account it went down to three percent so showing up to class was a better predictor of performance than grit and it's always been the case grit has lived on like mental toughness because it has the illusion of validity it seems to make sense But what seems to make sense is not science. Science is what we do to not make fools of ourselves. Uh. Because what things seem on the outside are not always what they actually are. It also is fueled by belief bias. People make money off of it. So it has not stopped, including Angela Duckworth. She had to admit to the scientific community she had nothing. But she continues to talk about grit as if it's a concept that is true. Why? Good question. I find it highly unethical. And actually what I also hear about uh, in the sense of how I hear it, I always go back to that you and I don't work with widgets. We work with people. Mm. And we should never, ever remove human dignity and safety from the parameters of how we work. Richard Feynman said it best, the Nobel Prize winning physicist doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is. It doesn't matter how exacting your experimental design is. It doesn't matter all the other factors that make it look flowery and wonderful. If the experiment's wrong, it's wrong. Mm. And to me, these two concepts distill down the complex system of high performance, of health and individual development down to things that are complete fallacies. And what they do is they injure people and harm people. Wow. That's really sad. Because you and I have both been in environments where misinformation leads to harm. Absolutely. And one of the only ways to combat that is to have solid, valid, and reliable objective data. Mm -hmm. And then it's no longer my story or my opinion versus your opinion. You're going, no, this this is concrete fact. And uh, now let's re-examine the case. Yeah. I would say I want to echo your point there and really emphasize that wisdom there is that 
one of the most important things as scientists that we need to do a better job is teaching people how science works, but also the facts are how science iterates. We can see it now in the COVID, what we knew about something that was very new to the scientific realm, what we know now are different, but that is the process. But without data, we're just a person with an opinion. And a good scientists caveat that, like I'm asked sometimes in interviews, I've done interviews about COVID in the sport environment, and they'll ask my opinion and I'll make it very clear you're asking my opinion. Sometimes I won't give it huh. because it's not appropriate. We should stick closer to the data. Now, if it's an inference about where the data is tracking, where it might go, I'm okay with that. But opinion confuses the public about how science works. And that's so valid what you're saying there. Yeah, somebody asked me recently, well, why haven't we seen like, you know, we don't know the long-term implications. Just why haven't we produced anything on that? Because just listen to what you just said. We are like an acute, subacute phase. Like we're not going to know long-term for a very long while. And I saw another article where it was talking about like potential cardiac issues with athletes. And then they said, but there's always been like 12 cases. So I'm like, just stop it. You're getting people to try to read an article by scaring them. And let's zoom back and look at all the confounding variables, like what comorbidities do they have? Like like what, you know, there's a whole lot of things to examine. And when you give an opinion, it, it, it creates some hysteria yeah. and, uh, and it can lead down to these paths of harming athletes. Yeah. I, what, I'm going to touch on that. I, I, I love what you said there. You know, a part of some of the things we were talking about is in, you know, a new book probably will be coming out post COVID because unless you're writing a political book, publishers don't want to publish it right now. Can I get an advanced <laughs> copy? <laughs> As but an it's editor. Touching on one of the yeah. things you're talking about, the fog of, the mass media age. Yes. Actually, one of my degrees is in journalism. So I've been very sad and empathetic to see what's happened to our traditional media that we grew up with, that you had newspapers that did this solid redundancy of fact-checking and collaboration. Mm. And what we see now is the, one of the falls of mass media is looking for clicks, a 24 hour news cycle. Scientific journalism, where you have journalists who are neither scientists and not even journalists in some ways, writing things that they don't understand, but they're creating an environment, like you were saying, where there's misinformation and this fog. And granted, it makes me feel sad. I'd have more respect for the process. Like if Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book with an actual scientist, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Then we're getting truer facts. But we're also, the best things come out of collaboration. I I admit it, as a scientist, I can't write as well as he does. I have no problem with admitting that. But imagine collaborations we'd have if we were better working as scientists with people who could write the narrative. And I think we do have to get better as scientists right there. But the scientific journalism has shown 10,000 hour rules, an example, numerous ones actually uh, that I write about in the chapter. That's probably the best known one, but the other ones I go into and give some more background on. This creates real disharmony with what do we believe, what do we understand, and how do we work with information? And as scientists, we need to be more active about policing the field about this stuff, but we don't. And and I think it's critical what you're saying is like, got to protect people. And we also got to teach them what science is. Yes. This is fun stuff. It is fun <laughs> stuff. You know, I, uh, I've always enjoyed science even as a kid, not math. I don't know why. <laughs> Usually those two things go together. If I don't have a calculator or a spreadsheet, I'm totally out of oh, luck. That's fine. Uh, but I've always wanted to understand why things work. And, you know, now with the confluence of like our machine learning and what you can do is, I mean, it's just, it's going to open up a world to us. STEM with schools. Mm. Uh, I'm excited. I'm honestly excited to see the great innovations that come out of this time, because as we get squeezed as a culture, people begin to innovate. And I hope that we create a future that's brighter, that empowers people, that maybe we can get away from these centralized, you know, how great would it be if we stopped building office buildings and built a little <laughs> bit bigger nuclear home mm-hmm. and had an extra room, like the true in-home office. Yep. And I just think there's going to be a lot of innovation around that. 
Mm. how to create a better work environment. I think we're going to see some like societal impacts of people coming home, Mm. maybe healing relationships, Mm. all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be fascinating. And, and all of us are now becoming teachers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I actually think that's fantastic. Like you're saying, and I, and I would agree with you. I think one of the pieces you touched on, which is really important. I write about in the book is that we often forget and you use the term that is often forgotten in this. People think hardware and technology, and I'm not saying you're saying it because you were implanting the word human beings, mm-hmm. that we often forget where these innovations come from are people. When we believe the hype of people are less important than the technology is when we fall victim to technology not really completing its vision and enhancing our lives. But we got to remember who invents this stuff. And if we forget that human beings are more important than hardware and software, we're in trouble. Because then it becomes more of a distraction rather than a tool. I do like you. I'm very hopeful that COVID changes and other changes in our environment will influence some of these things that we do see innovations that very much help us. Where we are with an extreme capitalist environment is we have to, and this is something I've written about extensively with colleagues in Australia from Queensland University of Technology. Is the technology safe? Is it valid? Is it reliable? Most of the stuff out there doesn't even have safety validity rather than the other things that it can purport that it does think. I agree that there are those who have that and those are the ones we want to shine the light on that will enhance our health and human performance. Yeah, but I'm excited about it too, no doubt. Just got to be careful of the carnival barkers on every corner of the internet. No question. Well, John, this has been an absolutely lovely conversation. I have taken more notes since we started this, then I think on any podcast so far, it's giving me more to think about. And I'm going to take you up on your offer down the line to have you back that we can take, maybe when we get close to releasing, you get close to releasing your next book, we can kind of take a deeper dive on that because I've known you for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And every time we've talked, I've always walked away like, oh my gosh, there's so much more I need to learn. And thank you so much for your time and for just the nurturing things you're doing for, I just think for mankind. I mean, you truly are helping a lot of people. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. I've always enjoyed conversing with you. And anytime you get to talk about these things, these really excite me. And I hope it excites your viewers and listeners because these are things that really can preserve our health and in our, wherever we're performing, keep that going. No question. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum. Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum. 